Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. I'm your host here and on the companion podcast, The Angel. Um, we are here on all the major podcast platforms, Apple, Amazon, Audible, and so on. Also on YouTube and, and, um, and Spotify. But most of all, we want to point your attention to Substack, um, where you can find the Accelerator and Angel, uh, all of the podcasts. Um, so we, we're great to, we're delighted to have you in any in any case, and also want to remind you to subscribe and recommend um, and and tell us you like it, and feel free to contact us too. Today we are joined by um, Scott Jablonski. He's the founder and uh, CEO of uh, Seventy Seven Analytics. Hello, Scott. Um, thanks for joining Hello. us today. Really appreciate thanks it. For the invite. Great to be here. So you have done so many things. I actually um, was particularly excited to see that you were spearheading some sports ventures at um, uh, Harvard Business School. Angels, I guess, is uh, the right way to put it. That's um, correct. Always happy to talk about sports. But first, I want to find out, I want people to know more about 77 uh, Analytics, because I know you do work with a lot of startups and you have kind of a unique consultative um role and uh, and take on other roles as well. So how would you describe what you do and maybe give us some examples? Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, so I've had 77 Analytics since 2015. So it's now been eight and a half years. Um, there's really two pieces to it. There's consulting and then there's advising. And the consulting is working with well-known brands on their strategic issues, operational issues. But the advising piece is working with smaller companies, pre-seed to series A or series B. And um, it is a lot more, um, lot more stuff to work on with those younger companies. But that's exciting to me, right? It's not just doing one thing and punching one widget. These founders are usually very bright folks who just need a little bit of help and guidance in navigating what it's like to found a business, to organize a business and grow a business. So, um, so again, I've been doing that for eight and a half years and have really enjoyed it. So what do you find they have in, in, in common in terms of Problems. Let's start with problems, and then we'll get to solutions. But what? What do you? What are? Are there some things that you see over and over, Scott? Yeah, um, with startups, what I find is you have very bright founders who have a good idea, and a founder needs to be optimistic. You need to believe in yourself and bet on yourself. And people are going to tell you you can't do it. And I think the really good founders just push that aside and say, "I'm going to do it." But there becomes a point when you become too optimistic. <laughs> And you have to now think about, hey, wait a minute, there are some darker clouds on the horizon. How do we think about this? So mm. in my experience, I think the good founders that I've met, you know, whether they be younger company founders or very successful people who've had large exits, know what they don't know. And they find those people or those resources that can help them think through solving those things. Mm. Um, and founders, when they start a company as a CEO, let's say, that person, that individual, he or she is wearing 20 hats. So how do you, over time as a founder, start to take those hats off and focus on a more distinct remit? Like, hey, I'm going to be doing sales and product development and these other things. And the other things have to go away. So that's what I've noticed a lot with the companies that I've just known and worked with. Um, but it is really exciting to see a founder grow through that experience. And, and what would be an example of... Um dark clouds on the horizon that maybe you see and they don't see. Yeah. Um, I'll give you one example is let's say you have a product um, and you're a bright founder, Michael, and you're a very good tech, uh, technological person. But then you say, hey, we have to market this. Hey, you know, I'm smart enough. I can build a product. I can market this too. And I've just seen it where very successful 
product people or people who have that experience say, hey, I can do this. And it's great to, you know, kind of grab a, an oar and row. But if you don't have the experience around marketing spend, getting your return on investment through those activities, it can be bad, right? You can really drain the company of, of free cash. So um, that's an example where I see the company will grow to a certain point, And then the founder has to grow and say, wait a minute, I, I oftentimes can't be the one to do this. We need to hire, whether it's a marketing person, a marketing team resource to help them with that. That that leads us to the taking the hats off. Uh, the founder wear the pardon me. The founder wearing twenty hats, uh, and and uh, gradually or maybe not so gradually trying to take them off. I mean, there there. I think you've really hit on something. There is no question that a founder, almost by definition, takes on more than they can handle because they have to. That's sort of the job. And then you reach a point where you need help. And um, there are barriers to help, um, a main barrier. Sometimes it's the personality of the founder. But what do you, here's a tricky situation. What do you do when, when the founder is willing to do that, but resources are kind of scarce? Um, there, a lot of times you hear founders say, I, I wish I could hire a marketing person. Like, how do you thread the needle? What's the path? Uh, and by that, I mean the uh, biblical eye of the needle. What's the path through that? Yeah, I think there are a few options. Um, depending on the stage of the company, and, and your mileage may vary as a founder, but yeah. I think um, this is where accelerators or incubators can help a lot. I work with a couple, and it provides a whole new set of resources to a founder or a founding team. Mm -hmm. So you can go into a program, have the umbrella of that protection, if you will, for three to six months. You get some equity investment from that entity. And then you have access to a bank of advisors and other founders who are going through the same exact thing you're going through, mm -hmm. right? And, and it really builds community because there are shared experiences and trust, especially amongst the founders themselves, even though they might be competing or in completely different industries. Um, and then the other part of it too is I think this is where, especially with the limitations on cash, the founder or the founding team has to think about equity, right? And how do I as a founder get help and not have to pay X amount in cash right now because we don't have that cash. So yeah. that's where you look for industry folks who are either willing to work with the company in an equity fashion or advisory folks like myself and many, many others who say, hey, I can help you. You know, we can negotiate some equity options or something, but this won't cost you any money. And you get a little bit of the gray hair factor or some other experience yeah. that can help you as a founder. And I think we're seeing more and more companies do that. And it is a sort of zero cash option. And it provides also a greater network because then you come to me as a founder and say, hey, Scott, do you know anybody in this industry? Or, hey, I see you know this industry. We want to dive deeper on this. How do we get into that? And that's something that's really tough to find off the street. But if you can you know, hook yourself up with those accelerator programs or incubators or advisors, it provides a few more options right there. So get some help. Excuse me, um, and 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 um, Scott and I both are uh, we're we're uh, trying to conceal the fact that we have coughs. Um, <laughs> so if uh, he's doing a better job than I am right now, but um, but don't be don't be dissuaded by that. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I had a founder recently who had um, reached a point, had a product pretty much done, and said he needed a, an additional thirty thousand dollars to finish the user interface. And I said, and um, so fast forward six months, 
and he still hadn't raised the money to do it. And I said, well, who helped you do the first part of it? He said, well, this, you named a company. I said, well, go back to them and offer them equity, offer them some kind of equity piece. And he was able to get it. Uh, they were willing to do like 15,000 in equity. Let's put it that way, but not the whole thing. So we came back and said, well, you know, that was a failure. That really didn't work. And I said, you know, the way you have to look at it is you just solved half your problem. You had a $30,000 problem. Now you have a $15,000 problem. But I really think um, he, I know that he got stymied. And, and basically, I think the job of the founder, you correct me, you give me your definition. But I think the job of the founder is to not get stymied and to figure a way around. Um, and, and as a company grows, that I don't think that changes. I think you're always doing that. What do you think? Completely agree with you, Michael. I'd say in the, the founders I see, the two really good qualities and, and functions they have to participate in, it sounds a little corny, is being chief solutions officer. Like you said, every uh -huh. day another problem arrives and you have to figure out a creative solution around it. And then the narrative piece, the chief narrative officer, because ultimately, when you're trying to sell your dream to other employees, partners, clients, institutional investors, angel investors, you need to have that narrative buttoned up to say, hey, this looks like a mishmash right now, but here's where the ship is headed. And I or my team or whomever are the folks to get you, get you there with your investment, whether it be time or money or other resources. And you mentioned, Scott, that you have worked with uh, two accelerators. Tell us uh, who they are and how that's kind of played into the way you think about this. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've worked with two accelerators so far. One is Techstars. And Techstars has, they've been around for a long time now, sure. um, since I think probably 2008. Um, and they have um, 15 years of experience and they've done things around the world. And they're different themed Techstars um, programs and then different locations. And, you know, I've been involved with several. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and the second one I work with, second accelerator, is Cal Berkeley. Here in the Bay Area where I am, I'm based in San Francisco. Um, they have an accelerator called Skydeck. And Skydeck um, has been absolutely terrific to work with. Um, so Skydeck gets into more deep tech and many, many areas of technology. And you get to meet, and this is important to me, you get to meet people who are a lot smarter than you. I want to be the dumbest person in the room. And that's a great place to do it. Um, so with both accelerators, what they are doing is they are having application processes and they're weeding out a lot of talented people and they're getting to kind of the cream of the crop. And so now Techstars programs kind of, you know, um, the duration of them shift from program to program, but usually they're around generally a few months or so. And then Skydeck is six months. So what you get to have there in both of those uh, accelerators is the chance to be an advisor or a mentor to work with these companies and get to know them over six months. And it is shocking how much these companies and these founders grow up in six months. They walk in saying, we're gonna do X, and they feel very confident about it. And then they realize maybe that's not the way we should do it. Or there are shifting macroeconomic things going on or technology things going on. And it's been a lot of fun to be around so many people who are so passionate about their jobs. Mm. And I mean that at the accelerator level, but also the founder level. These founders have a very, very difficult process. You basically get into a boat with a hole in it and keep bailing water out until you can get it seaworthy. And just to watch people who are so passionate about their jobs and so happy, I mean, look, there's, there's disappointment at times, but 
so happy to go yeah. to work every day and keep trudging through. Like that is really inspirational. So if I or other advisors can help, then all the better. And for me, you get to foster that relationship over some months with these founders. And then there's sort of a love connection made at times. And you say, hey, actually, you have a really interesting idea. My background could be helpful. And you just kind of talk more and more and you say, yeah. how can I help you? And then you become you know, on their advisory board or their official board when they have one. That's really the fun part. Let me ask you right about that moment. What, what, what do you, what would be an example of something that happens right at that moment um, where you decide as an advisor um, that you're going to stay involved? Because I'm in a, in a similar, in a similar situation frequently where, you know, you, as an advisor, and we, we normally talk about this from the founder side, but, but as an advisor, you're sort of at a point where it's, um, Fisher cut bait in a way because it's your time. Um, you you ideally would will have some form of compensation, whatever that might be. Um, but it's it's difficult to continue without any kind of a formal, more formal relationship. Um, have you found that? And how do you how what makes you decide? You said you know you called it falling in love, and I think that's such a great um, analogy. Because in a way, you if it's almost like I feel if you don't fall in love with them, you shouldn't work with them. Well, yeah, because ultimately, whether I'm an investor and I put our hard-earned money into that company, or I put my hard-earned time into that company, right? It's an investment either way. And sure. so you as a mentor, an advisor, an investor want to make sure you're going to get return on that. And you know, with investment, it's sort of like charity, right? You can donate your money or your time. And with working with founders, if you donate your, your investment dollars, there's basically one type of return coming back, and that's financial. I put X into the company, and I want to see it be 5X, 10X, 100X. Okay? Yeah. But when you're an advisor, it's different. And this is what I found. Your returns come in different forms. Yes, it could be financial because you have equity options potentially, you're on the cap table, and hopefully the rising tide lifts all boats. But it's also, I get to learn from really smart people every day. And they are pursuing things in deep tech that I haven't had experience in. Now, I might have complementary experience, and that's like any good partnership or relationship. Both sides profit. So where I can learn something selfishly from them, and then they can take my experience and help them navigate the, the waters that they're in, all the better. So that's why it is kind of like dating and then finding your, your partner, or in this case, maybe several partners. Um, to, to work with. And you get to broaden, at least I get to broaden my skill set out, which is super important. Yeah. And, um, you know, S Scott, your background is so interesting and, and so varied. Um, but I would really be remiss as somebody who ran a sports company for 12 years if I didn't talk about your sports experience, which includes, um, I'm looking at your LinkedIn right now, senior manager, team marketing and business operations at the NBA, vice president, uh, NHL club analytics at the National Hockey League. Um, you also were general manager for three leagues, NFL, NBA, and NHL at StubHub, um, and uh, had additional jobs um, uh, 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 doing due diligence on multiple sports and entertainment properties with, with uh, a company called L2 Point. And I think there was even an, another one in there, right? So that's a, that's a big part of your resume in sports. Um, and as somebody who who kind of took that plunge myself. Um, I'm interested in all of that, but what, what did you learn about 
the sports industry that you didn't know? I know that you were likely a really big fan or you wouldn't have gone in that direction in the first place. So what's the difference between looking at it as a fan when you started and looking at it now more as a business? What's the biggest difference? The biggest difference is you get to see how the sausage is made. And uh-huh. I think as a consumer of sport, you could sit there and say, hey, my team won today. I'm happy. My team lost. It's a bummer. Um, but when you get to see what happens behind the scenes, how the play comes together, that is really intriguing. And it's something for me in my kind of academic pursuits, I've always loved. I've always loved to understand how things work. When I was a kid, I was just telling our six-year-old daughter last night, when I was a kid, I would take apart the radio and try to put it back together. And it never went uh-huh. back together just the same way. But I, le- I learned, right? And I taught right, myself. Right. Hands on. Um, this really stems, Michael, from my personal background. So I'm from upstate New York. Um, none of my family have gone to university before me. So when I got to go to university, I felt like the world was a little bit more open to me. And then I went for my master's degree. Then I went to Harvard Business School and got my MBA. And I got to meet such brilliant people from such different backgrounds. And it really hammered home how important education is to me and, and opportunity. And so when I was in business school around very, very intelligent peers, for me, I felt like I had an opportunity to chase a dream when a lot of other people that I know back home or in other places don't have the opportunity. So for me, it was like, where do I want to put my money every day, my, my resources every day? And it kept coming back to sports. And I always found it interesting to crack open this idea and see what really makes sports sports. Um, and so for me, being so fortunate to work for the National Basketball Association for a couple of years, the National Hockey League in New York, you know, just is like the mecca of sports there. Um, go to a lot of good events, meet really great athletes, see championship trophies up close. It was pinch me kind of moments. Um, and then for that matter, being at StubHub too, which was, you know, affiliated with sports, obviously, but more broadly entertainment. Um, but I think, yeah, what you get to see is how things come together. So when you go to a baseball game, as uh, a fan, you enjoy the game. You have your hot dog, your soda, your right. beer, whatever. Right. But when you're working there, you say, why is that area of seats empty? Why did they market this particular thing that way? Why is that sponsor in that position? And you start to be much more critical of how things are done. Um, but it does actually impart a lot of wisdom on how things come together. So uh, in the 2012-13 National Hockey League season, we had a work stoppage. And I was one of the people helping negotiate through that. So oh. I got to look at a 700-page collective bargaining agreement document and wow. go through there in negotiation. That document is the underlying religious tome for any sports league. So for me to go through that and understand that, it was eye-opening. And the fans sit there and say, hey, we just want hockey back. I completely get it. But you get to understand what that machine is underneath that makes it drive. Um, so that was a very, it was a great investment in my time. And I really enjoyed my time at the leagues. And stuff. And, and in the work stoppage is a great example. What, what, um, obviously you're aligned with the league in that, in that respect, um, you're working for the league, but, um, what did it mean to see that from the league perspective? Because we only, most people were all fans, right? We see it from the fan perspective, which in practice, really means the player perspective because fans are going to associate generally with players. So what was it what was it what did it mean to see that from the league perspective? Yeah, it was it was very eye-opening because in the room were a lot of lawyers and attorneys and and JDs and me. <laughs> so I was definitely the black sheep in those discussions. Um but it was so insightful to see how things were thought about. 
and it, the terms horse trading, right? The horse trading that goes on between the players association and the league and its owners. Um, but what you get to see though, is that the, the discussion, the arguments are about the entity as a whole and how it lives going forward. Mm. Can we as a league with its teams and owners and players and venues and fans, can we exist in the current model or does our model have to change? And collective bargaining agreements are typically five to 10 years. And you have to look out five to 10 years and say, what does this hold for us? So in 2012, no one in the room sat there and said, in 2020, we're going to have COVID and it's going to decimate sports and no one's going to be able to go to a lot of it. No one sat there and looking at years in the future, but you try to take your best shot at it. And so it becomes a question of the business becomes a question of the partnership between owners and players. And the financials, quite honestly, because that, the financials, you pay your money to go to a game, that money goes to a league and the teams, that money then goes to the players to pay them to play that game. And so the system runs. So yeah. it's, it's a real eye-opening experience. And I wish I could kind of like codify that, that six or eight months, whatever it was, a couple of years, or you know, 10 years ago, and just be able to put it in a box and say, I'd love you to see this because this is how the actual, the, the sausage is made. Um. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, I noticed this week that uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell re-upped, got um, a contract extension. You worked for Gary Bettman, right, at the NHL. He's still there. I mean, he's been there a long time. He came from the NBA. And my guess is you, uh, um, based on what I can, my mathematical skills, you worked for David Stern um, at the NBA. So these are these commissioners are perennial. They're long, they're evergreen. Um, David Stern, of course, is, was replaced by Adam Silver, who is his, uh, who was his right hand man, and has shows every sign of being there for another fifteen year, ten or fifteen years. Um, but but that kind of stability is important. I'm curious what what did you learn from the sports industry that you convey to founders and startups? What 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 what, what is the secret sauce in sports that is sort of a that can also be ladled on something else? It's a great question, Michael. You know, working at a league, you work with 30 teams at the NHL or you work with 60 plus teams at the NBA. You're really with an, it's funny because you're, it's an oligopoly. There's, there's almost nothing. I, I can't think of anything else like a sports league because they get antitrust exemptions and they can operate. Um, I don't want to say in coercion, but they can operate in concert legally, right? Right. And so you're working with all these teams at the same time. And at the NHL, you can have the number one team in ticket sales call you with a question and the number 30 team, now 32 team, call you with a question. And you're literally sampling the whole gamut there. Or the seven teams in Canada who have a Canadian dollar versus the other teams that have an American dollar. Um, And at the NBA, when we were there, um, it was not just the NBA teams, but also the WNBA. And then the now G League teams, the minor league teams. So to go to the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden and then go to Erie, Pennsylvania, it's two different universes altogether, right? Um, but, you know, so working really from my perspective and all of my peers' perspectives, I think, working with all these teams was just such an eye-opening experience. Because what you get to see is 32 teams or 60 teams, whatever, all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to win a championship. And they're all trying to bring a great fan experience to their fans who come in the arena or who, you know, consume virtual content, what have you. 
but you get to see how many different paths they take to get there. And there's no roadmap. And I think that's the really pertinent point I mentioned with the startup founders I advise is that there is no roadmap. I can't give you a list of one to 10. And if you do these things, you will be successful. Ain't gonna no, happen. no playbook. No playbook. Uh, I can tell you that as a parent, there's no playbook. But, <laughs> um, but the important thing is the dithering, is the responsiveness to your outside stimuli. So when a player gets injured, what does a team do? When um, something in the e economic market hits, if, you know, if all of a sudden interest rates get higher or layoffs happen, how do we get people to come to the game? And that's something we saw in 2008 when it was at the NBA because we went through the financial crisis. And we were all worried, very worried about what was going to happen. But David oh. Stern, the commissioner at the time, said, go look at the front page of the New York Times the day after the stock market crashed in 1929. You've got a full Yankee stadium. And he always said there are two houses of worship in the United States. There's religious houses of worship and there are sports arenas. Uh -huh. And so back to your question, Michael, about how these startup founders thinking, what can I take from that experience and, and bring to them? It's you get to see that there are a million paths to get from the beginning to the end. but you have to keep checking in to say, are we doing this correctly? Does this feel right? And what are the people on the left and right of us doing as well? Because, you know, tragedy will befall some of them. Some things are going to happen that are out of your control. But how do we react? How do we keep our finger on the pulse of the market and make the appropriate changes in dithering to get there? And that's really when you're the captain of the ship and you're the CEO, that's your job. You've got to be that solutions officer and that narrative officer say, here's the path we're taking. Oh, we're going to go a little bit to the left now, but here's how it all wraps back to the narrative. And that's what we see a lot in the sports teams. But, and it's a little more obvious when you see a team doing well in the standings or poorly in the standings. But yeah. that's what we saw on the business side as well. I have to, before you go, we've got a couple minutes, but I, I abs absolutely must ask you about StubHub. So um, I think it's accurate to describe it as a secondary ticketing market. Um, where where fans could sell, and I guess suppose teams too could sell their tickets if they had excess tickets. Um, what explain to people how that works and and why that area is so competitive? It seems competitive. What what is it about that? Yeah. So the difficulty is when you as a team price your tickets, you're usually pricing tickets up to a year in advance. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. So. NBA and NHL teams will get their ticket pricing set for the following season in November or December of the previous year. Really? So yeah, it's about a year away. So let's go back to what I said before. Go predict the future. Predict what's going to happen in a year. Predict what's going to happen on the field, off the field, in your market, more broadly in macro sense. It's impossible. So what you have is teams going out and pricing inventory, their ticketing inventory, with what they know at that point and maybe some guesses and hunches. Ultimately, the secondary market, the market where you might have bought a ticket in the first place as a fan of the Yankees, let's say, the secondary market, when I re, when I, when you resell it and I buy it from you, that is the real truth of the market because it's showing right there on that day what somebody is willing to pay, the bid and the ask. So the secondary market was really created by StubHub in, in the mid-2000s. And then obviously Ticketmaster got involved and then there are a lot of other companies now who are in that space. Um, and it is quite competitive because what happens is you can either buy something based on the entertainment value or the financial value. And ultimately, you have multiple marketplaces and you might have one ticket listed across those at different prices. 
So then it becomes, well, I can get this cheaper on this site. Click, I'm going to go do that there. Um, but obviously, when Taylor Swift shows up to a game, a Kansas City Chiefs game in New York, the Jets tickets go through the roof. Who would have known that? Nobody, nobody would have known that. So the secondary market is a source of truth that's out there. And oh, I, I like that. The secondary market is a source of truth. It is, yeah. And and what, remember, what too, that it, it's not just fans selling their tickets, but also professional sellers, ticket brokers. Of course. And these brokers take inventory from the teams, and they put their inventory out there. They take on the financial risk. So it is a real big engine of the sports ticketing landscape. But ultimately, it's so different because the primary market is so uh, done so much earlier than the secondary market actually consummates a sale. I see. Um, I see. Yeah, it was, it was a hugely... It was a huge learning experience for me working yeah, because you got so to see again the machinations. Yeah. Um, I want to remind everybody you're talking to, uh, you're listening to, I'm talking with with um, Scott here, but you're listening to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. Uh, we also do the Angel Podcast. We're on all the major platforms. Uh, you can, if you want audio and video, go to YouTube and or Spotify. Um, the best place to find everything is Substack. So go to theaccelerator.substack.com. Um, and I want to uh, thank um, profusely our guest this morning is Scott uh, Jablonski. I should say this afternoon, Scott Jablonski. He's the founder and um, uh, CEO of 77 Analytics. That's a consulting company that does all kinds of creative things, including work with um, larger companies and startups. So, Scott, I'm really grateful to uh, to meet you and um, to make this connection and um, and wish you the best of luck, of course. It was my pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Take, take care. You too. And thank uh, you. all of you out there, remember, uh, we'll be back with another podcast before you know it.